Well, today is uh, Ascension Sunday. That's been quite clear in the bulletin and shall continue to be so. And our text has been long recognized and used by the church to celebrate the Ascension. Our text is Psalm 47. We just sang it, and there'll be an offertory from it later on. This is a psalm, Psalm 47, which sets forth under the figures, the images, if you will, the images of the Old Testament. It sets forth our Lord's ascension. Now, this is not obvious at first blush. You may have read Psalm 47 many times and thought, Nothing of the ascension of Jesus. And to get at this, we're going to have to step back just a little bit and do some wide-angle, panoramic, big-picture, biblical thinking. Because the ascension, the ascension of our Lord Jesus, is a theme which gathers up and it fulfills large tracts, whole swaths, of the story of redemption. And so we'll look at the text under three headings, Psalm 47, three headings. The, the first conquest, the first conquest, that's in verses 1 through 4. Ascension, in verses 5 through 7. And then the final conquest, verses 8 and 9. So it's first conquest, ascension, and final conquest. So, first conquest then, beginning in verse 1, the text opens with two commands, two imperatives. Clap your hands and shout to God with cries of joy. And these commands are addressed not simply to Israel, but to all peoples. Because the God of Israel is not another local tribal deity. And thus the psalm summons. It's interesting, right? Israel's a local nation, and yet they insist that all the nations come and worship their God. The psalm summons all nations to acclaim him with loud, raucous jubilation. And the reason for this sort of international summons is given in verse 2. How awesome is the Lord Most High, a great king over all the earth. Here we have two names of God which motivate the call to praise. The Lord, or Yahweh, is Israel's God, the God of the covenant, the God of the Exodus, the God who tells Moses, the Lord is my name. But he's also called here the Most High. And this is a term which speaks of his supremacy, the supremacy over all pagan deities. Most High is, if you will, one of God's international names. His traveling name. Melchizedek called the God of Abram, God Most High. And when he met Abram, he said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, Possessor of heaven and earth. So you can see, the, you can see the, the most high leads to this idea of heaven and earth. Cosmic dimensions. The whole creation. The God of all. 
Deuteronomy 32 says it is the Most High, the Most High who gave the nations their inheritance. It's the Most High who divided mankind. It's the Most High who fixes the borders of the peoples. And so the Lord is the particular name of the God of Israel, but the Most High is His universal name. It it stresses His universal dominion. This God is a great King over all the earth and is to be joyfully acknowledged so by all peoples. They are to clap and they are to shout. And this God, the text continues, granted Israel... An inheritance, a unique inheritance, a land. You can see that in verses 3 and 4 in Psalm 47. He subdued nations under us and peoples under our feet. He chose our inheritance for us, the pride of Jacob whom he loves. This is about the land. The pride of Jacob is a term which refers to the glorious land, the promised land, to Canaan. It refers to the land of inheritance that God gave Israel. And that means that these verses, verses 3 and 4, they refer to the holy war. The series of holy wars. Wars of complete destruction. Waged. Not entirely successfully. Waged under Joshua against the inhabitants of the land, which... Lord willing, we will soon look at in the book of Joshua. That warfare was how God subdued nations and peoples under Israel's feet. The metaphor of subjugation here, under the feet of Israel, refers to the military campaigns under Joshua and then later under David. After Joshua subdues the Canaanites. David sets up an empire. He brings the nations around Israel into his orbit. And then those nations are called in this text to submit joyfully and to celebrate the universal kingship of Israel's God. These are subjugated nations, conquered, who are called to clap their hands and to shout and to sing. So I want to make a few points about these verses and try and connect them to the larger biblical story. This is the panoramic part. So, first, Adam, we always go back to Adam. We start with Adam. Adam is called in Luke's Gospel the Son of God. He was established in the Holy Land of Eden. He was to keep the garden and guard it. And the glory and the peace of Eden was to eventually fill the whole earth. Everything was to come under the dominion, the godly dominion of Adam and his offspring. And I want you to notice in this text in Psalm 47, there are echoes of Adam's calling in Eden in this text. When this text uses the language of subduing, and the language of under us, and the language of under our feet. It is evoking the first couple of chapters of Genesis because Adam was called to subdue the creation. 
And so Adam's established in this holy land. And after that, the Lord rests on the Sabbath day. And, he, and he, his rest means he enthrones himself as king. King over the cosmos of which Eden is the center. But we all know what happens. Adam fails to keep the land holy. He fails to slay the serpent and he's exiled. And later, Joshua arises, is to lead Israel, and Israel is called the Son of God in the book of Exodus. He's to lead the new Son of God into a new holy land. And so Israel now, with Joshua at its head, is a new Adam. She's a new Son of God. She's called to enter a new holy land, a new Eden, and obtain a new Sabbath rest. And Joshua conducts a series of wars of total extermination. Holy wars to establish a holy land. But he fails to fully secure the eviction of the Canaanites. And Israel has to continue to fight wars on and off, down through the book of Judges, and long after Joshua is dead. David arises, and David is called a son of God. He consolidates and he enlarges these victories by Joshua. He secures the land, expands it to its originally promised boundaries. This is just part of the spine, if you will, of the biblical story. So Adam and Joshua and David are pictures of Christ. They all fail in their task fully, but for a brief while, David has an empire. And this psalm refers to that empire. And that empire has nations paying tribute. And that empire has land which is temp temporally secure. So, the point is, that from the very beginning, God has desired, and we've said this a few weeks ago, and Lord willing, we'll say it again. God has desired a holy people under a holy covenant head in a holy land from which evil has been fully evicted, enjoying a holy rest. That's the whole Bible, as condensed as it can be. And that situation, albeit perfectly and flawed, exists at the time of David. The subjugated nations, nations in the land that God has given His Son, they are called to worship God. So that's the first conquest. The second point is the ascension. And here we get closer to why the church has historically seen Psalm 47 as an ascension psalm. Verse 5. God, after coming down to fight for Israel... God who comes down and who conquers now goes up. He ascends. And he ascends with a shout, with the sound of a trumpet. And this is a reference to the bringing of the ark by David into Jerusalem in 2 Samuel 6. There the text says that David and the house of Israel brought up, up the ark with shouting and with the sound of a trumpet. The conquest of the land is so God can be enthroned as king, so that he can ascend in triumph. And this event 
This event is celebrated in Psalm 24, which speaks of opening the gates of the city so that the King of glory might come in, the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord in the ark. This event is commemorated in Psalm 68, where Yahweh is said to ascend on high, leading captivity captive. So after his triumph, his securing of the land, the Lord takes his seat. Even here in the Old Testament, he takes his seat on his throne in the ark in Jerusalem. And he does so to loud acclaim, not only of Israel, but of all the surrounding nations. Notice in verses 5 and 6, I think it's five times that Israel and the nations are called to sing. To sing praises to God, who is the king of all the earth. This is why the church has seen this text, Psalm 47, and the related psalm, Psalm 24, Psalm 68, as prophecies, foreshadowings, pointing forward to the ascension of God in Jesus Christ. Like Yahweh in the Old Testament, Christ, after his conquest, after coming down to fight, after his triumph, he ascends as universal king. And he is destined to receive the acclamation, the loud clapping and shouting of all the nations. The presence of Yahweh, the God of Israel, the conqueror in the ark in Jerusalem, is now the presence of Christ, the conqueror in the heavenly temple. This is what we mean when we often say that we see Christ in the Old Testament. We see the outlines, the lineaments of his work in Psalm 47. Adam, Joshua, David, they all failed to bring this about. They all failed to bring this about. But Eden and later Canaan, they were pictures of this coming glorious reality of a new heavens and a new earth, purged and cleansed from all evil. The Bible tells us that when Abraham was wandering around in Canaan, he was looking for the city of God. So now, I think, we're in a better position to assess the momentous significance of the ascension of Jesus Christ. The ascension is not a meaningless footnote to the resurrection. I think that's what happens. That's sort of the default position in our minds. Jesus is risen. That takes care of everything. And then he has to clean up a few details leave a few instructions, and head back to heaven. But that's a, a deeply truncated and weak view of the ascension. The ascension is the cosmic enthronement of Jesus Christ. It's the guarantee that the realities which Adam and Joshua and Israel and David failed to bring about shall be secured. It's the ascension the ascension which secures the universal range of Christ's triumph. 
This is the vantage point from which he's going to extend his empire from the river to the ends of the earth, as Psalm 72 says. This is the place, the place of ascended glory from which Jesus shall subjugate the nations. You notice the New Testament lesson today was from Ephesians 1. That's a traditional ascension text as well. And there Paul says that Christ was seated far above all rule and all authority and all dominion and all power and every name that can be named in this age or in the age to come. This cannot be asserted even of the merely risen, but not ascended Christ. Have you ever thought about that? What good would it do you if Jesus was raised from the dead and was still wandering around in Palestine somewhere? How could he assert his universal kingship in the Spirit? It's the ascension which makes Christ universal and coming king. And that brings us to the third point, the final conquest. In that text in Ephesians 1, which was read this morning, where Paul says that he put all things under Christ's feet and gave him his head over all things to the church? That's another echo of Adam in Genesis. Just like you have in Psalm 47, all things under his feet refers to the original mandate of Adam to subdue the whole creation for God's glory. And so again, the ascended Christ fulfills the mission of Adam to crush the serpent, to transform Eden, to bring in the everlasting Sabbath. He began this work in his incarnation. He carried it out throughout his whole life, in his death and in his resurrection. But it is the ascension which seals and which guarantees the full fruition of all that God in Christ has accomplished. All that Adam failed to accomplish, all that Israel failed to accomplish. And this is vividly pictured as you move to the end of the Bible, the back two chapters of Revelation, 21 and 22. The new heavens and the new earth. The holy city descends, and how is it depicted? It's depicted as a new Eden, free from evil, with its original glory heightened, escalated. But there's something else here that's often missed, and it's this. The ascended Christ, the new Joshua, the new David, is a holy warrior king who cleanses the land. And the land now is not just Canaan. It's the whole earth. Jesus cleanses the land of all evil and he will give it to his redeemed people. This is also begun in his earthly ministry, right? He cleanses the temple at Jerusalem. He predicts the coming destruction of Jerusalem. He inaugurates a kingdom and he binds Satan. He plunders the house of the strong man. But this holy war, this conquest continues in its fullness now that he is ascended. The book of Revelation shows this to us most graphically. There are a series of seals and trumpets and bowls 
a series of judgments that are poured out throughout the whole book of Revelation. They're administered from the throne of the ascended Christ. And they are designed to scour the earth of evil. They are holy war. This is what Jesus is doing right now. Do you ever wonder that? What is Jesus doing? He's scouring the earth of evil in one form or another, either by repentance or by chastisement and judgment. He ha- what is, is Jesus' plan? His plan is to evict every piece of unrighteousness and injustice and idolatry and wickedness from the cosmos. That's why he ascended. So what is Jesus doing now? He's waging holy war. And the nations that bang up against this are cracking and disintegrating. When Jesus pours out these judgments, seals and bowls, in the book of Revelation, which is what he's doing now, he's placing unrepentant nations under the ban of holy war, of total destruction. And when he appears in his consummation, the ascended one finally destroys all principalities, all satanic powers, all bestial state-like empires which oppress his children, the propaganda arms represented by the false prophets, and all their followers. This is what Jesus will do when he comes again. He will do what Adam and Joshua and David failed to do. He will, without pity, in holy judgment, cleanse the whole world from evil. This is the part of the story that's often suppressed because it doesn't sit well with Jesus meek and mild. But it's a crucial part of the story. It's surely present in the logic and language of our psalm, especially in verses 3 and 4. But it's far from the whole story. The rest of the story, you have to turn to verses 8 and 9 in our text. And here we have a scene of the coming eternal kingdom. Verse 8, God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. Notice what's happened in this psalm. God has come down. God has conquered. God has ascended to Jerusalem to the ark. And now God reigns over all the nations. There are now, as the psalm works itself out, as we read it in Jesus, there are no enemies left to be subdued at the end of the psalm. God is the universal king on his throne, and it's a throne on which the slain but standing and ascended lamb now sits. And this kingship of God, the ascended Lord, is now, as it shall be, universally, joyfully acknowledged. You see that in verse 9. The nobles, verse 9 says, that is the rulers of the nations, assemble, right, not as the League of Nations or the United Nations or in the Hague. They assemble, all the nobles and rulers, as the people of the God of Abraham. Picture this day. This is the day the ascension secures. All the nations are depicted in the text as redeemed and in covenant with God. Their nobles, their kings are assembled as the people of the God of Abraham. And here the Abrahamic promise. 
right, echoed throughout Scripture that through Abraham, in his seed, in Christ, all the nations of the earth, the Gentile nations, are to be blessed. Here, that promise is gloriously fulfilled. Right? We saw that this was anticipated by Jethro and Rahab and Ruth and the Queen of Sheba and Naaman the Syrian and the Syrophoenician woman and Paul's whole ministry to us Gentiles. But now, Psalm 47 says, the ascended king will have a day when all the nations are assembled as the people of the God of Abraham. This is what we mean when we say, as ascended, Jesus fulfills the original intentions of the whole creation. This was the intent. Had Adam obeyed, the whole creation would have been a temple, a cosmos for God's praise. Everyone would be assembled as the people of the God of Adam. The text concludes, the shields, that is the nobles, the kings, all their prowess, all their signs, belong to the greatly exalted God. These nations are not subjugated by Joshua or David's warfare, but by the holy war of the gospel, waged by the church under the ascended Christ. Holy war is now spirit-empowered witness. And the outcome here is pure joy. These princes, these nobles, these peoples, they're assembled And they assemble as God's people, freely and gladly. So what's the outcome? The outcome is God's going to have a holy and sinless people under a holy and sinless son in a holy land, which is the whole cosmos, from which all evil has been evicted, enjoying a holy, eternal Sabbath rest, a land in which righteousness dwells. And that is why Christ has ascended to secure those ends. And the the heart of this magnificent vision, which, which is also, by the way, the literary heart of this poem, this psalm, is that God in Christ has gone up and ascended with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. So go back to the original call. Clap your hands. Shout to God. Sing praises, the text says, and more praises because the incarnate God is now the universal king. For in the ascension, Christ is, as the psalm concludes, highly exalted. Amen.